Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, if you are not there already. Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18 will be the specific section of text that we're going to look at this morning. Romans 9, verses 14 through 18. This is part of a larger section that was read to you earlier. Really, it takes us all the way down through the completion of Paul's argument in Romans 9, verse 29. If we were to give you sort of an overview, you can see it written on the back of your order of service this morning. There are really four aspects of God's character that come to the forefront as we study this, and we will see it over the next several weeks. They come after these first two lessons that we covered, namely the spiritual children as described in verses 1 to 5, and then the sovereign choices outlined for us in verses 6 through 13. And then, beginning here, Paul further develops the idea of God's sovereign choosing by elevating the character of God and the nature of God and the person of God and revealing to us these four magnificent realities about his character, his mercy, his providence, his patience, and his love. Those are the four that we'll look at over the next several weeks. His mercy, his providence, his patience, and his love. And and if there are sort of an overarching statement that I would like to just begin with, it's listed for you there at the top of the page where it says this, God is faithful to his promise. And by his mercy... Rebellious sinners are called to him in saving faith, and his kind providence guarantees the adoption of a righteous remnant from every nation and people. And so if there is one underlying theme that runs through this whole section, it is that we serve and worship and honor and are subject to a merciful God who, by his mercy, has extended grace to anyone who puts their faith in him. If they hear the calling of the gospel and they call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. And what I wish to stress towards the end of our time together this morning is what a mercy that is, what a delight that is, what a relief that is, and what a joy that is, and to hopefully leave us with that as the taste in your mouth as you go. Not a a burdensome fear or a questioning of God's righteousness in election, but rather the sweet taste of the knowledge of the mercy that he extends that no one deserves. So this is, again, children of the promise, second installment in this series. The outline this morning is really very simple. There's just three things I wish to accomplish. Number one, I'm going to outline for us here at the beginning Paul's objection and the answer given to it. He he anticipates the objections that might come as a result of what was said in the previous section, and he answers it. That's the first part. And then the way he answers it needs to be understood because there is an argument being formed here. If you have your Bible in front of you, just look down. That, That beginning in verse... Uh, 15, 
we have the start of an argument, an actual formal argument, as if Paul were in court. And verse 15 begins with the word for, and then verse 16 is so then. And verse 17 is for, and verse 18 is so then. And so he anticipates a question that you might ask, and then he answers the question, very generally speaking, and then he goes in to defend the answer that he gives with two particular points. Number one, it is mercy instead of our works, and number two, it is mercy instead of our choices. So he's going to ask the question and answer it, and then he's going to develop it in a for and so then format, emphasizing the fact that it is God's mercy over our works and God's mercy over our choices. This is God's word. Romans 9, 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For, Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he has, on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is God's word. The doctrine of sovereign unconditional election, and specifically the, the biblical teaching that God ordains the providence of every individual soul, and has understood the end of each one of those souls before they had a beginning is a doctrine in which some delight and some despise. It's a doctrine that, that some take great delight in and rejoice in and are relieved by, and a doctrine that some despise, reject, and refuse. And from my own experience, quite honestly, the, the, the doctrine itself is not rejected usually based on teaching to the contrary. I have not encountered too many people who have been under consistent, compelling teaching of an alternative view. However, I have encountered many that reject the doctrine because it reaches their ears having had very little teaching on the subject at all. And in fact, so rarely are the doctrines of grace and the fundamental teachings of the Reformation actually explained that I think many Christians are unfortunately perplexed by the notion that God is actually the only being in the universe with absolute free will and autonomy. They have been taught that God is among a class of beings with free will and autonomy rather than the only being with the majesty and the glory of free will and autonomy. And so this lack of knowledge, in fact, is compounded, it seems, in the lives of many people by the fact that, that so many are actually fed in their churches a steady diet of self-esteem-boosting, self-centered, self-help sermons, that the idea that God would even orchestrate events 
contrary to our will, seems totally unreasonable, if not unjust, or in the worst case, even immoral, to the point where they are actually on the very precipice of accusing God of wrong for having done something that they find offensive. They are are like the one who has to be told by God to put their hand over their mouth lest they speak themselves into a situation where their blasphemy results in his judgment. So there are really at least two competing realities that put us on edge. And I just want to disclose them up front. I want to be the one who brings them up. I mean, Paul does that in his writing. I want to do that in my speaking. So let's just put it out there. What are the things that really cause people to struggle with the doctrine that we're going to learn about over the next several weeks? Well, first of all, our happiness. (laughs) Our own happiness. Just what we prefer, what we like, how we live. Our own happiness, our own will is what matters to so many of us more than anything else. And therefore, God must not violate anything that would affect our desires. God God cannot violate or encroach upon our desires, our will, our needs, our preferences, our happiness, our joy, our life as we've built it. And the very fact that he would do that challenges our thinking about him and even causes some to challenge the concept of his goodness. The second one is our righteousness, our own sense of justice and what matters and therefore God's actions must be subject to our critique. We sit back and we analyze whether we agree with what God has done, whether we agree with his choice, whether it is fair in our eyes or right according to our moral standard or acceptable or necessary. And so it's very easy for us on these two levels. Number one, to question the doctrine based on the fact that it compromises our own happiness or to deny the doctrine because it compromises our sense of fairness and righteousness and justice. And Paul is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, already on top of it. He's already asking the question for us, and he will therefore answer it in this section. So both of these challenges, both of these things that put us on edge are actually dismantled utterly in Romans chapter 9. Because God here, as described by Paul, focuses most intently and specifically on his own glory in sovereign election and predestination, not our works and not our choices. And that is meant to lift us up to the heights of praise to him, not to the point of rendering judgment against him. In his excellent book, the classic book, Somebody described to me, by the way, a classic is a book that everyone owns and nobody reads. Arthur Pink, in his book, The Sovereignty of God, quotes Spurgeon, who says this, quote, attempts have been made to prove that these words do not teach predestination, but these attempts so clearly do violence to the language that I shall not waste time in answering them. I read... As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And I shall not twist the text, but shall glorify the grace of God by ascribing to that grace the faith of every man. Is it not God who gives the disposition to believe? If men are disposed to have eternal life, does not he in every case dispose them? 
Is it wrong for God to give grace? If it be right for him to give it, is it wrong for him to purpose to give it? Would you have him give it by accident? If it is right for him to purpose to give grace today, it was right for him to purpose it before today and since he changes not from eternity. He is saying to us, if it is right that God does purpose to give grace to lost sinners like us so that we hear the gospel and respond in faith, is it not also good that he actually does that intentionally versus accidentally? And since he doesn't change, is it not also good that he purposes to do it today, yesterday, and in keeping with the plan that he had set up before the foundation of time? Can we rejoice in that together, folks? (laughs) That's the point. So we could just end here. But I have time, so let me go a little further. Paul asks questions so that we don't have to. Romans 9.14, look at it. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. He, he asks the question that you are asking and that I am asking and that the Jews were asking and the Gentiles were asking and he asks the question for us and then he answers it right away. He will then give evidence for it, but it's very clear. By no means, there is no injustice with God. He says, by no means, may it never ever come into existence ever. Psalm 48.10 says, as your name, O God, as your very being, your very nature, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Psalm 71.19, your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? And then for anyone who would presume to know better, the wonderful words of Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight declares the Lord. God delights, takes joy in his own love and justice and righteousness. Isn't it astonishing that the God of the universe created everything and has all power, chooses to delight in loving sinners, chooses to delight in doing justice by sending his own son so that he could absorb the wrath of God that we deserve, that his justice might be maintained, and righteousness, doing it all in perfect holiness, never compromising his character in the least. Is it astonishing that That's the kind of God that we worship. No other God is like that. No other God of the nations was like that. No other God of the other religions is like that. He's not capricious. He does not make us do certain works to earn his favor. His love doesn't run hot and cold depending on our performance. He doesn't ask of us wisdom. Don't take boast in that. 
He doesn't ask of us might and strength and power and influence. Don't boast in that. He doesn't ask for us riches. It doesn't matter if you've got lots of money. It's not going to help you one bit in terms of your standing before God. In fact, he says rejoice in your inability to know very much, do very much, or have very much because it's all been known for, done for, and given to you by him, by grace. Now, with that as the underlying understanding, and in light of this, Paul puts forward the question so that we don't have to. He says, why? What did he say? What made him know that we would have to answer the question? Now, now at the the risk of belaboring this, I'm just going to ask you to bear with me for a moment because we've got to back up to last week. He's responding to what he said earlier. He's responding to what he said up to verse 13. He realizes that what he had just written is going to cause people to ask questions. And so he says to them specifically, in light of the fact that he has just said that God chose Isaac and not Ishmael, and God chose Jacob and not Esau, and that his decision was made before they were even born, and long before either of them had done anything, as a consequence of that, we're going to have questions. And it's okay to have questions. I would rather receive a lot of questions throughout the week by people who are wrestling with doctrines like this, then receive no questions because nobody's wrestling with it because nobody's really listening. So, so don't worry about peppering me with questions. I love questions. It reminds me people were actually here on Sunday. We gotta work through this together. This isn't easy, I acknowledge it. I've been looking forward to Romans 9 in one sense and, and not in others. But in this case, let's look at it and remind ourselves what it says. In this case, Isaac, he says, was chosen and named, named Isaac, even before he was conceived. Remember, he comes to Abraham, he says, I realize that you tried to help me out by having a child with Hagar. Thank you, Abraham, appreciate you trying to accelerate the fulfillment of my promise, but I'm going to actually fulfill it through Sarah, like I said I would. And you're going to have a son, and his name's going to be Isaac. And, and I don't know at what point in this whole exchange that, Moses, or that Abraham starts laughing, but he laughs at God. Just footnote, don't laugh at God. God is not to be laughed at. God is not to be mocked. He laughs at God. And so that's why he says to him, you're going to have a child and you're going to name him Isaac. You know why? Because the name Isaac means he laughed. And so in a year, Sarah, your 90-year-old wife is going to give birth miraculously to this son, Isaac. And let me remind you, he chose Isaac over Ishmael because Ishmael was already born. And some say, well, that doesn't really teach election. All that teaches is that, is that God chose that line. Because remember, Abraham had a child with Hagar, that was Ishmael. He had a child with Sarah, that was Isaac. Then he had six sons and maybe daughters with Ketra after Sarah died. And then he also had sons and maybe daughters through a bunch of concubines as well. And so some people say, well, this doesn't really teach God is choosing Isaac. It it just teaches that God was trying to sort through at least one line since Abraham had all these children with all these different women. That's a weak argument, but, but let's just, for the sake of interest, let it stand for a moment. It's utterly put to rest by the next section, which says in chapter 9, 10 to 13, and not only so, so in addition to this, but also when Rebekah had conceived children, what does it say? By one what? One man. By one man, our forefather Isaac. Unlike Isaac's father and unlike Isaac's son, Isaac himself 
had this line through this one woman. Though they were not yet born, had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose for election might continue, not because of, not as a condition of, I would say, works, but because of him who calls unconditionally. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now you may recall that he is quoting from here Genesis 25, 23, but he only records the last part of the verse. If you take the whole verse in totality, it says, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, two nations, and two peoples from within you shall be divided, and one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. That is why I said in general, the principle, the context would suggest that Paul has in mind the two nations. But I'll hasten to add, and perhaps even correct myself from last week, this is not to say it isn't applying to the individuals too. The individuals are certainly in mind as well. He did choose one over the other. He chose Jacob and not Esau. But if you look at the individuals, Jacob and Esau didn't quite have the relationship described here. In fact, Jacob, remember later on when he meets him in Genesis 33, is terrified of Esau. Jacob's been gone for years, and so has Esau, and they have both been realizing the promise that God had made. Esau is now a great nation, as it were. He's got a huge family and a huge army, I might add. And Jacob has a huge family as well. Remember, he was going to marry one woman, and then he got the other one instead, the sister, and then he stuck around for another seven years, and he got the other sister, and then they had trouble having kids together, so the one sister gives the servant to him, and they have a child there, and then the other sister has a problem, and she gives the servant to him. Before long, here's Jacob going around with four wives and 12 sons. And a whole lot of stuff. And as he's moving across the open plain, there's Esau in the distance. And he sees him and he knows what's going on. He's terrified. Why? Because Jacob and Esau have some rather, shall we say, unfinished business from when they were kids. And he's terrified. And so Jacob does what every manly man does, what, what, what every leader does, what every strong man does. And he sends the women and children first. Can <laughs> you believe this guy? Like, for real. Like, oh, honey, oh, no, that's Esau. Oh, wow, I bet he's still mad about the whole, like, stew situation and stealing his birthright and, like, lying to my father. Tell you what, wow, he is probably going to want to kill us. So, so why don't you go first? And whatever happens to you will let me know kind of what's going to happen to me. He's terrified. He's not ruling over Esau. He's terrified of Esau. And then, of course, you know, the story ends wonderfully. Esau says, why do you keep sending all these women and children and animals in front of you? I was looking for you. And there's a reconciliation. They go their separate ways. But here's the thing. In Genesis 25, the quote that we see there, quoted in Romans, is really connected to what God said to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 17, 16. Just listen to it. He says, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will become nations. Kings and people come from her. And so it's fulfilled throughout all of the history of Israel, and in particular as it relates again to the offspring of these two men, of Jacob and Esau. And I see this clearly in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 14, when I read, then he, David, put garrisons in Edom. Remember, Edom comes from Esau. Those are all the nations that come from him. He puts armies in there, and throughout all of Edom he puts garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. 
And Yahweh gave victory to David wherever he went. So, on the one level, Romans 9.13 applies to the nations, but that's not to be overemphasized because it also applies to Jacob and Esau. They are the ones who were chosen or hardened, and they created nations of people which for generations have been chosen or hardened. Now, even more important is the fact that this choice of the individual or of the nation was not based on works. And we're getting back now to Paul's argument. Everybody heard this. Everybody understood it. They see that it is on the basis of God's choice and his choice alone that he is sovereign over all of salvation. And this is the most incredible doctrine for them, most, most certainly personal, most certainly individual. Some from every tribe and tongue and people and nation are called to be saved. And therein lies the problem. There are some who actually take issue with God for choosing people unconditionally. That's why the question is asked. Now, this is considered by some to be unjust. And in fact, there are some who go so far and have the audacity to call into question the fairness of God in operating all of redemptive history in this manner. And so Paul, again, anticipates the objection. He answers it. He says, no, God is not unrighteous. And now he explains why. So here are two arguments. Number one, mercy instead of works in verses 15 and 16. And mercy instead of choice in 17 and 18. Let's look at the first one, mercy instead of works. And we'll move more quickly through this. Verse 15, for, begins the statement, he says to Moses in Exodus 33:19, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Stop there for a moment. That is the ground of the argument for why we have to understand verse 14 the way we do. The four points back to that verse and further back to the encounter with Moses. Now let's just backtrack in our minds a little bit to understand what he's saying. Paul is picking up a statement, a little clip, if you will, from a longer statement that God made to Moses when Moses asked for God to reveal his glory. So, understand the picture. Moses says to God, I want you to show me your glory. And so God puts him in a cave and he covers him up and he lets his glory pass by him. And the way his glory passed by was that he made statements about himself. He described himself. This is his glory. His glory is at stake. So God says, if you want to know my glory, I'll describe my glory. My glory includes many of these attributes. He gives them all, including the fact that I have mercy on whom I have mercy. So I will have mercy on whom I have mercy is tied to his glory. That's why it's important. Why do we rejoice in the mercy that he shows? We rejoice in it because it has to do with his glory, and God is more concerned about his glory than anything else. God's glory is most important to God. God will never do anything that diminishes his glory. That is why even in the utter perplexity of the cursed world and the fallenness and the sin and the destruction that we see all around us, we must understand that somehow in his sovereign purposes, all of that even is working out for his glory. Do you understand that? That, 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 that all of 
the whole arc of redemptive history from creation to the fall to the redemption and the blood of Christ all the way to the resurrection and restoration, all of that taking place in this fallen world with all of the pain and all of the sorrow and all of the sin somehow in the end works out for God his greatest glory. Glory in the judgment of the wicked and glory in the reward to the righteous. Never a righteousness of their own, but always the righteousness of Christ. So in all of this, it is attached to his glory. Sovereign, unconditional election is an aspect of the glory of God. And he will be glorified forever for his mercy instead of our works. Can I just back up for a moment once again and remind, this, remind us of this? And, and I don't mean to be sort of flippant, but allow me to say it this way just to emphasize the, the, the futility of this way of thinking. You will not spend eternity glorifying God because of your good works. You, you will not spend eternity glorifying God because of all the good deeds you did. You will not say, glory be to me. Righteous, righteous, righteous was me. And therefore, this is my reward. No. You'll be saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And because of his mercy, I am here. And you know what that does for us now? It makes loving other people really easy because there is no hierarchy. We don't say, well, those people are really, really evil and they need the gospel. They really need the gospel. Like, I only needed the gospel a little bit because I wasn't that bad. I mean, yeah, I was bad, but I wasn't that bad. I needed like a minor dose of gospel. They need like the full barrel of gospel. I mean, it erases that kind of nonsense. You say, no, we are equally in need, equally recipients of grace, and we'll be equally glorifying God together for what he has done for us. Not one aspect of what we have done will factor in. No good works. So here's the conclusion. Look at verse 16. So then, he kind of summarizes that first point, it depends not on human will or exertion, but absolute strong contrast on God who has mercy. So then. So then, beloved, listen to me. There's two things in view, the willing and the running, neither which will help you. These are all talking about your works. Your works are described as willing and running. Now, if you were to get up early in the morning and go for a run because you wanted to, because you love getting up early, putting on your shoes, going out the door and running. You will to run and you run. You are a willing runner. It's not going to help you. Maybe you get up in the morning and you are going to run, but you don't want to. You are an unwilling runner. You're running, but it's not fun. You are not enjoying it. Or you get up and you run and you are a willing unrunner. Like, I will to do all sorts of things I don't do. I, I would love to go run. I would love to go run in the morning. I love things I'd love to go do. I'd love to go to the gym. I'd love to go run. I'd love to eat better. I'd love to do these things. I will, 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 but just don't do. Willing's not enough. Meaning well is not enough. And then there are some, you got no will and no running. I got no will to do it, and I got no way to do it anyway, even if I will to do it. 
But here's the thing. Notice, it's the non-will, non-runner even who is rescued by the mercy of God. Let's be honest about it. We are all no-will, no-runners. The only willing and running we're doing is to will away from God and run away from God and will to sin and run to sin. Amen? None of us were chasing after God. None of us were pursuing him. We are all like like Saul who became Paul. We are running as hard as we can the other direction. And by his mercy, he crashes into our life and redeems and rescues us from ourselves. So I hope that that will deflate even the very beginnings of pride in our hearts as individuals, as a church, that we don't look down upon anyone who comes in here. That we do not heap shame upon anyone. We don't heap guilt upon anyone. That we receive, not by overlooking, ignoring, and denying sin, but by taking the existence of that sin and pointing them to the Savior who forgives all of it. And says to them, it is not about how close you are because it doesn't matter where I find you, it matters where I take you. And the most beautiful picture of that for me is the thief on the cross. Remember him? This man has spent his entire life as a career criminal. This person has done nothing but sin. And as he hangs on a cross beside the sinless son of God, having done nothing to earn his favor, having done nothing to pay for his crimes except for what he's getting as he deserved it on that cross, having luckily paid no restitution, having not turned his life around, he simply calls out in desperation, remember me when you go into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, today you will be with me where? In paradise. He doesn't say, too late. You didn't have time to turn your life around. You didn't have time to prove that you're serious. You didn't have time to go through my little evangelistic booklet. You didn't have time to pray the sinner's prayer and do these other things that will guarantee that you're saying, no, he says, it was that willingness, it was that brokenness, it was that openness, it was that coming to the end of himself where he says, I have nothing to bring, nothing to offer, but if you in your mercy for some reason, there is absolutely no reason for you to save me, that criminal would say. There's no reason. I've done nothing to earn this. I don't deserve it. But if you could find it in your heart to compassionately receive me, I want it because you're real. He responds the way he does. It's not your works. Number two, it is mercy instead of our choice. It is mercy instead of our choice. Look at verses 17 and 18. For, again, picking up the argument, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, and this is in Exodus 9, 16, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth quotes what God says to Pharaoh, leader in Egypt who persecuted the Jews. Now in the coming weeks, we're going to develop this more, but for now, let me just consider the statement in general. This is the second argument that he uses to uphold the righteousness of God. He says that God is righteous in everything 
because he only does what is going to magnify his own glory. Remember, his glory is the most important thing. And therefore, all of his choices and actions lead to the glory of his name. And that includes even the raising up of those who challenge his glory in order to show his power over them. That his glory is put on display when he ordains that certain men be raised up to fight against him that he might destroy them as a manifestation of his supreme power and authority. And he chooses Pharaoh as his example. Now I'd like you to turn over to Exodus because I just want your eyes to fall on these verses. I'm going to go through them quickly. You can either write them down or you can try to follow along as I flip through. But I just want to make sure you understand this and, and you see it because I'm not not inventing this out of thin air. Beginning in Exodus 7, we read this. Beginning in Exodus 7. And Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron like, or shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Okay? He says, I've made you like God. You're my mouthpiece. And Aaron is going to articulate this to Pharaoh. And God tells them ahead of time, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my children, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. He says that I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he says no, so that I bring judgment, so that you come out, so that I am glorified, not only by him but all the nations. Look over at Exodus chapter 9 and verse 12. Chapter 9 and verse 12, once again, after multiple plagues have come upon Egypt, verse 12 says, but Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses, like he told him already was going to happen. You're going to go, you're going to preach, he's going to be hardened and you're going to judge. Now down in verse 16 of chapter 9, the quote from Romans, but this, for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Look over at Exodus chapter 14. Just a couple of more. Chapter 14. While you're making your way there, I'll just... Read a little bit of the context. He says, For Pharaoh will say to all the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. This is his chance. He regrets it. I can go and get them. Verse 4, and God says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, which means armies, and the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. How is he going to get glory? He's going to get glory by luring the Egyptians, by hardening Pharaoh's heart into a place where he will destroy his armies. Let your eyes fall over to verse 17 
of that same chapter, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, not just Pharaoh, but of the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. Then I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. I have gotten glory over Pharaoh. Who gets glory when Pharaoh's army drowns? God gets glory. Is that unrighteous of God to get himself glory by raising up Pharaoh for the purpose of imprisoning his people so that they could be extracted and he can pursue them and then be destroyed? If that's what God wants to do to gain glory, then that's in God's prerogative to do so. Amen? That's why it matters that we don't hold him to some sort of judgment based on our feeble, pathetic evaluation of the circumstances. Now, he didn't just do it to Pharaoh. He did it to Sihon as well. And again, I'll just read these to you. You don't need to turn here. But in Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 30, we read this. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. Why? For Yahweh, your God, hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he's done this day. Why, why did he make Sihon hardened? So that Sihon would make a bad decision and that the Jews would, could destroy him. Even the whole nations during the conquest were like this. Joshua chapter 11, verse 20 says this. I just love the summary. He says this after they were fought all the people in the land except for the Gibeonites who they made the contract with foolishly. But verse 20 of chapter 11 says, For it was Yahweh's doing. To do what? To harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that, there's the purpose, they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as Yahweh commanded Moses. So friends, I just want you to see the evidence from Scripture that this is what the Bible teaches us, verse by verse, section by section, and that's all that Paul holds up as an argument. When people ask questions, he just gives them what the Bible teaches. He quotes Scripture, and then he trusts that those who truly belong to God will receive that as his word and believe it. And so, verse 18, the summary just to review, we said he asks the question and then he answers it. Secondly, it's mercy instead of works in verses 15 and 16. And now mercy instead of our choice in verses 17 and 18. So then, 18, he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. It's not a matter of our choice. It's God who does the accepting, not us. We can't manipulate people into receiving Christ. We cannot scare them into receiving Christ. We can't put some legalistic structure around them to guarantee that they'll receive Christ. We can't guilt them into receiving Christ. And what we receive is only what he gives us. And so whether he shows mercy or he hardens hearts, it's all for his glory. And when we object to his will, to exalt his own glory through his own sovereign mercy, we do put ourselves at great peril. Paul's appeal here is not to casually and carelessly embrace a doctrine of this magnitude with just a simplistic acceptance. It is faith, yes, 
but it's not just a simple acceptance. And so he will labor through the rest of Romans 9 to develop this in more detail. Because you might be asking, how can all of this, if God isn't responsible for man in terms of his mercy over his works and his mercy over his choices, then how can God really find fault in anybody? And that's not just a question you're asking, it's a question the Romans were asking because that's exactly how he picks up in verse 19. And if you want to know the answer to that, you'll have to come back next week because that's where we'll start. But in the end here, I want to give you two points of application for why we rejoice in this doctrine. Why, why do we rejoice in what we just learned? Number one, we rejoice in his mercy instead of our works because no good that I do can qualify me for salvation. That's pretty much understood. But I would add this, and no evil I do can disqualify me from salvation. Rejoice today that there is no sin that you can commit that will overrule the election of a merciful God. That if he chooses you and sets his mercy and his grace upon you, it is not because you're better than somebody else. And there is nothing that you have done that can separate you from his love. That goes for believer and unbeliever if they are chosen by him. And so this doctrine kills pride in the self-righteous and it brings hope to the rebel right up to their final breath. Why do you keep preaching the gospel to somebody until the final breath, until the final moment? Why do you not give up on your spouse, on your parents, on your children, on your neighbor? Why do you not stop? I mean, why not just say, you've heard the gospel once, now it's in your court. Why don't you just quit? The answer is that if you believe in a sovereign God who chooses unconditionally and by mercy apart from works or choice, then you are till the very last moment appealing to that person that they might hear, believe, and receive. Because you don't know if you have a thief on the cross kind of situation. Do I believe in deathbed conversions? Absolutely. Why? Because God may very well have ordained that just such a conversion occur to remind people like us on a regular basis that it ain't over till it's over. Amen? May that be what infuses our, our thinking and our evangelism and our discipleship and our parenting. Why is this so encouraging? Because your deeds are not sovereign or determinative. God is. God determines. If it was just works, a guy like Saul would not be saved. Saul didn't want it. But God did. So you can't say that he can't save you because that makes your sin more powerful than his mercy if you're wrestling with that today and maybe you think, yeah, I've heard this before, but you have no idea what I've done, you don't know what sins I've committed. You don't know how far I've gone. You don't, you don't know what my life is like. I can say with all due respect, it's irrelevant because 
the sin that you commit is not more powerful than the mercy of God extended to one who believes. As the song rightly put it, our sins, they are many. His mercy is what? More. Secondly, why is this an encouragement? Looking at our second point, his mercy instead of my choice. This is also an encouragement because it means that he gets all of the credit. That I don't accept him, he chooses me. That, that, that this means it is all and only of grace. It actually robs us of the opportunity to boast. We can't say that we did it, that we were smart enough, wise enough to do it. In fact, it deprives of us of even the temptation to take some kind of credit for our own salvation. At no point did we do something that God could point to as a reason to choose us. He did not choose us because we first chose him. He declares the opposite. Let that be an encouragement to you today. That is not an insult. That's an encouragement. He did not look into the future and see that you were going to choose him and therefore he chose you. That's classic Arminian error. Along with all the other Arminian error that's so often is our natural disposition to adopt coming into an understanding of a text like this. At no point did we do something, past, present, or future, that God used as a reason to justify his choosing of us. That is a relief because it brings his reason for choosing to the point where we understand that it is his own and is not contingent upon my behavior or my choice. So, how does this impact my evangelism? I want to close with this quote from J.I. Packer in his wonderful little book, yet another classic, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. He says this, Quote, the sovereignty of God in grace gives us our only hope of success in evangelism. Some fear that belief in the sovereignty, in the sovereign grace of God, leads to the conclusion that evangelism is pointless, since God will save his elect anyway, whether they hear the gospel or not. This, we have seen, is a false conclusion based on a false assumption. But now we must go further and point out that the truth is just the opposite. So far from making evangelism pointless, the sovereignty of God in grace is the one thing that prevents evangelism from being pointless. For it creates the possibility, indeed the certainty, that evangelism will be fruitful Apart from it, there is not even a possibility of evangelism being fruitful. Were it not for the sovereign grace of God, evangelism would be the most futile and useless enterprise that the world has ever seen, and there would be no more complete waste of time under the sun than to preach the Christian gospel. You see, he's saying that Far from this doctrine making us lazy evangelists, this doctrine makes us hopeful evangelists. Because 
God has declared that it is his glory to save. Apart from any work and apart from any person's choice. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this encouraging truth. We have a long way to go through this chapter, and I pray that you would harness my effort to explain this such that it is not offensive unnecessarily, that it is not arrogant or dismissive of those who do not see it the same way. Father, I thank you for the passionate, consistent ministry of evangelism conducted by many who do not see this the same way. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ who would perhaps teach this differently. We are accountable to you. You are the judge. You're the only one to whom a teacher will give account. And so I do pray that nothing that we learn over these next coming weeks would be in error or would in any way harm this precious flock that I love so dearly. So I'm praying in front of them for accountability that you would first do a work in my heart to make sure that everything that we talk about is coming from the starting place of a desire to understand you, your word, and make much of your glory. Father, I pray for those today who have not yet embraced this truth. For those who are perhaps regular church attenders, but have no real appreciation for the doctrine of salvation. I pray for those who need to be awakened, who need to be strengthened, who perhaps need to be shaken from the lethargy that can so easily cloud our thinking when it comes to doctrines of this nature because they're just too hard to think about. Father, help us to enjoy leaning into that struggle over the next several weeks that we would be able to come away more confident in our ability by your spirit to know your word. I pray also for those who are not believers, who have not called upon the name of Jesus in order to be saved. And we pray back to you your word from Romans 10.4 that it is for anyone who believes and we highlight the anyone in that. And so I would just pray even today that you would do your work in the hearts of anyone here who believes. And that we would take this doctrine and that it would not puff us up and make us arrogant, rude, proud, unkind in any way, but humble, broken, deprived of anything that would cause us to boast and instead completely focused on your glory as you are and most specifically in the way that you show mercy upon whom you show mercy because none of us deserve it. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.